why is it that some people have absolutely no interest in the things of God? Uh, when Aaron and I moved to the mountains 40 plus years ago, uh, we started attending, as I've said before, a Bible-believing church for the first time in our lives. We had been uh, uh, attending churches in our childhood. We grew up in the church. But for the first time, we were in a church that was actually reading the Bible. We didn't even know at the time to bring our own Bibles to church. There were Bibles in the pew, but everybody brought their own Bibles. Very famously, because I've said it before, when the pastor got up to preach and announced the, uh, what he was preaching from, there was this rustling sound. And Aaron and I looked around to see what was going on. You know, What is this rustling sound that we hear? And it was people opening up their Bibles because they were interested in the study of God's Word. And we found, sitting in that church, that the Bible was fascinating. We found the history, the spiritual truths, the insights about human nature, both ancient and modern, to be of great interest to us. Now, my archaeologist buddy, who I've spoken of, uh, was living with us that time. Uh, we were building houses together. And um, so excited and taken with the study of God's word was I, that I repeatedly urged him to join us at church. But he never did. He had not the slightest interest in going to a church. Um, so instead, I'd tell him about what we were learning, and he was still totally disinterested. Not disinterested, uninterested. He was one of those convinced that God did not exist, that going to church was foolishness. And when I challenged him to debate on that subject, about God, about his working in the world, about Christianity, he said, sure, I'll debate you. Here's the premise. There is no God. And with a premise such as that, you're not going to get very far in a debate. Even at that time, as a new Christian, I wondered where this refusal to even remotely consider the idea of God came from. Was it stubbornness because of his own family's history of Atheism, let's just put it that way. Oh, did his obstinacy stem from his advanced education um, and the hostility that universities treat the subject of religion with? Because we all know they do. Was he simply rebellious against the Judeo Christian heritage of the Western world? And we see that nowadays more and more in everyday life, even here in the United States? Was he stiff-necked about Christianity, a term repeatedly used in Scripture of the Jewish people in their rejection of God's laws? Or was it worse than that? Had he hardened himself against God so much that God therefore hardened him against the things of God? Which is it? Was he stubborn, obstinate, rebellious, stiff-necked, or hardened against the things of God? The answer, as you probably guessed, is yes. Okay? Exodus 22, verse 9. 
uh, is where God speaks to Moses about the endearing qualities of the Hebrew people. And it's usually translated uh, the way that the English Standard Version translates it. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. And they're using the words of the King James, you know, uh, stiff-necked meant something back then to King James that it doesn't mean to us. But the New American Standard translates it, Then the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. One of the few cases where the new contemporary versions of the translations of the Bible uh, are more accurate, the contemporary English version says, I have seen how stubborn these people are. The New Living Translation says, I have seen how stubborn and rebellious these people are. Okay, add a little bit more detail there. And the Amplified Bible, they didn't want to leave anything out. They said, I have seen this people, and behold, they are a stiff-necked, stubborn, rebellious people. And though hardened is not used in any of these translations uh, of this verse, uh, earlier in Exodus 8.32, when, uh, which says, but this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart. And Exodus 9.12, which reads, And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them, just as the Lord has spoken to Moses. This is the same word that is translated stubborn, obstinate, stiff-necked. Hardened is the same word. It's just used in a different way. Any one of these words is fitting in the context that we see here in the Lord talking about his people. And the tense of this word indicates that it's an ongoing action, meaning they weren't just stubborn, they were actively stubborn, they weren't obstinate, they were continuing to be obstinate. This describes an ongoing rebellion against God and against God's plan. So as we turn to our passage in Acts for today, this word is again coming up in what Paul faces in his teaching in the synagogue in Ephesus. Indeed, um, this is what he has faced in every synagogue he has debated in on his missionary travels. An ongoing rebellion against God and God's plan. Our passage today is Acts 19, verses 8 through 12. I'll give you a moment to turn there. And as you do, uh, our recap last week as Paul entered the city of Ephesus, he met a dozen men who were followers of John the Baptist. And uh, verses 1 through 7, which we covered last week, read... And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, 
John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So continuing on, verses 8 through 12 today say, And he, and that is Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them. And the evil spirits came out of them, uh, which is just right from our uh, New Testament reading today. When Paul left Ephesus for his trip to Jerusalem, the Jews of the synagogue in Ephesus had asked him to stay for longer. And he, because of the vow he had taken and had to be completed in Jerusalem, uh, reluctantly left them and said that he would return to them if the Lord willed. Faithful to that promise, Paul now entered the synagogue, not as a stranger, but as an invited guest, a visiting rabbi of some note. And remembering that Paul is from this land, they knew who Paul was. And so verse 1 said, And he entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning, and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Three months was one of the longest stretches of preaching for Paul recorded in scripture. Uh, usually they got rid of him be- long before that, okay? But three months, um, they listened to him. And um, as was his way, the apostle Paul, Paul preached in a bold and controversial style. He did not back off of accusing people of that which they were guilty. He would point out their sin. He would point out their failings. He would point out the only way to be absolved of that. Having been invited by the synagogue, Paul held nothing back. Not that he probably ever did anyway. Having the marks from the canings on his back as proof from Philippi, He spoke boldly, it says, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Reasoning comes from the Greek word dialogoma, from which we get dialogue. John MacArthur says that um, these were not just lectures given by Paul, but a question and answer session with the apostle answering challengers from those in attendance. So he would take the questions and he would answer hard questions that they had. Persuading means to convince by argument, showing that Paul met with some measure of success. Because if he was persuading people, some were coming along 
to his point of view. Inevitably, resistance to Paul's message once again arose. Verse 9a says, But when some became stubborn, and there's our magic word of the day, uh, stubborn, stiff-necked, obstinate. But when some became stubborn, their action shows them to be hardening themselves against God and God's kingdom. And thus, just as God did with Pharaoh, hardening them more himself due to their reaction to Paul. Continuing on in verse 9, it says, But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation. So we've got three things going on here. They, they not only became stubborn, but they continued in their unbelief. And then to top it off, they spoke evil of the way. Now the way is how Christianity was at first described. It wasn't Christianity. We've seen where that came in in Syrian Antioch. But they were described of the way. And so they were speaking evil of the way. The commentator Daryl Bach concludes that this threefold response of hardening, unbelief, and speaking evil indicates complete rejection of Paul's message. They were not going to listen. I've had experience that in my own living situation with my archaeologist buddy. Hardened, not listening, not wanting to hear it at all. So after three months teaching in the synagogues, verse 9 concludes, and I'll read it all again, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And this, this is a fun part, I like that. Those believed of the Jews in the synagogue became disciples of Paul and of Jesus Christ, therefore, and left with Paul. Paul began teaching daily, it says, in the hall of Tyrannus. Other translations say the school of Tyrannus. The scripture does not say any more about Tyrannus, and we actually do not know anything more about him. It is supposed that he is one of the many Greek philosophers who would instruct students who wanted to learn his, his philosophy. And he, therefore, had a school or a hall, a building that he held his school in. Now, the, the name Tyrannus, you know, often names given to people back then. Michael, my name, was who is like God. Samuel, uh, I, you know, I meant to look all these up. Anything that ends with an L is something about God, okay? But Tyrannus is Greek, and it means our tyrant, okay? Now, it is supposed that this was given to him by his students as a nickname in the school, our tyrant. The only way that one commentator could see that a, uh, parents would name their child our tyrant was if it was... They were new parents, it was a firstborn, and he was colicky, okay? That uh, 
then the tyrant kicks in in the baby and they jump to it. But it is most likely given to him as a nickname. And I, I love these things in the Bible. You know, in the hall of our tyrant is where these, where Paul ends up teaching. No longer restricted by the schedule of the synagogue, it says that Paul taught daily in that hall of Tyrannus, the building the Christians of Ephesus either borrowed or rented, and we do not know which one that would be, from this philosopher. Now the Western text of Acts adds detail to this that we do not have uh, in the other Uh, texts of the New Testament and it says that Paul had use of the building from the 5th to the 10th hour of the day which is 11 to 4 p.m. 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. he could use the day. Now why would Tyrannus give Paul use of his hall during the most productive hours of the day? No he didn't. Late morning to early evening are not the most productive hours, uh, are the most productive hours to our air-conditioned society. But then, as now, many uh, Mediterranean cultures forego work in the heat of the day. They take a siesta. Uh, Ephesus was one of those areas that did. Uh, They would take a... Uh, a break from the heat of the day until early evening. It is said that there were more people awake at 1 a.m. in the morning than at 1 p.m. in the afternoon because it was just too hot. They would work in the morning hours, take a siesta during the day, and then in the evening they would socialize with friends, take late meals. More were awake at 1 a.m. in the morning than at 1 p.m. in the afternoon. Paul worked in his leather trade in the morning, as Tyrannus did in his school of philosophy. And when Tyrannus took his siesta, his break in his work for the heat of the day, Paul was allowed to use the school to teach of the kingdom of God. And is that not like Paul to work at his trade in the morning hours and then continue working because yes, teaching and preaching is work and he did that, it says, every day of the week. Verse 10 says, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul continued this hectic schedule For the next two years, during this time, all of the towns and cities, and that is not an exaggeration, all of the towns and cities in Asia Minor received the word. We don't know that Paul himself taught in any of those cities, but his his disciples, his congregants would go into the countryside preaching. We don't, like I said, we don't know if he preached in any city. We do know that he wrote to some of the cities that had been preached to and had active churches. And we know from his own letters that he had not gone there. For instance, um, 
proof of this is found in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Colossae was a great church. Laodicea also is mentioned in this passage in Colossians 2 verse 1. He says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all, those, and for all who have not seen me face to face. So, you know, the, the seven churches that are mentioned in Revelation were all in Asia Minor. Among them, Colossae, Laodicea, to their enduring disgrace, was named also. Uh, but we do not know that Paul himself went to any of these cities. These churches, and probably all of those Asia Minor churches named in Revelation, were planted by those converted by Paul in Ephesus, who then took their new faith into the countryside from which perhaps they had come moving to the big city out of their towns, and uh, we don't know that, but um, took it now into all the country that we know, Asia Minor, is now known as Turkey. So throughout that countryside, the disciples in Ephesus took the word of the Lord. Verse 11 and 12 closes our passage for today this way. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. The ministry of the Apostle Paul was attested to by miracles to prove he was of God and not just ordinary miracles you will see that it says that these were extraordinary miracles okay let's explain that a little bit Ephesus was a center of pagan magic and people would do what were called miracles but they were ordinary miracles Paul was doing the hard miracles okay Paul as we see here was doing things that Jesus did in his ministry, the healing of the sick, uh, the casting out of demons. Uh, these were things that the ordinary magic of Ephesus could not do. Uh, the account of Jesus on his way to heal the daughter of Jairus uh, portrayed the power of Jesus' miracles in this way. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was ruler of the synagogue, and he fell down at Jesus' feet and begged him to come to his house for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Now a woman, having a flow of blood for 12 years, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng and press you, and you say, Who touched me? But Jesus says, Somebody touched me, for I perceived power going out from me. So somebody had touched him with faith, expecting healing. Now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. 
And he said to her, Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. This was the quality of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. He was not doing ordinary miracles, but extraordinary. He, and it's confirmed by the reaction of the ill and the demon-possessed of Ephesus. They took away anything that touched Paul's body in their uh, desperate search for healing. And I do mean anything. Okay, it says handkerchiefs and aprons. Okay, if you're like me, I'm thinking of a pocket square in, the, in Paul's suit, you know. No, a handkerchief is what we would call a bandana. Uh, when I played tennis in my youth in the heat of the San Fernando Valley, I would wear a sweatband. What was called a handkerchief here was a sweatband to keep the sweat out of Paul's face as he worked in his leather workshop. What is called an apron was not an apron. It was a towel tied around the middle of the person underneath their uh, robe, their garment, to catch sweat there. We, remember, we're in a place where they have to take siestas. This is a hot, sweaty place, okay? This is, this is what they were taking. They were taking the stinking, sweat-soaked garments of Paul to the ill and to the demon-possessed, and those were driving the healing and the casting out of demons in the area. So the question that always befuddles me is this. Okay? This is going on, and the people in Ephesus, in the synagogue, know it's going on. They see the healings. This is not an isolated incident. The people were taking Paul's handkerchief, his his. They're taking it and passing around. This cannot go without notice by the Jews of the synagogue. So, to put it another way, how could there be so much unbelief in the midst of so much belief? And it's something that astonishes me. It's sort of like, who will they believe? Satan or their own lying eyes about what's going on around them? The answer, from a Reformed perspective, is that these Jews who drove Paul out of their synagogue were stubborn and obstinate and stiff-necked and rebellious uh, and hardened against God and the things of God. Scripture clearly teaches that those who believe were chosen, elected, from before the foundation of the world. So, the unbelieving Jews, the unbelieving pagans, if they are not elect, what chance for salvation have they got? Okay? Because they obviously cannot believe. They are hardened. They will not believe. If everything is preordained in this way, though... Why did Jesus give us a great commission? I mean, why can't we just sit back and let those who are, who are uh, elect from before time? Well, that means God's going to save them. Why 
did Jesus want disciples to uh, want the uh, Christians to make disciples of all the nations, as we see Apostle Paul doing throughout Acts? Why, when Philip saw the Ethiopian eunuch reading the book of Isaiah, did he ask the man if he understood what he was reading? And getting the answer, how can I without someone to guide me? And Philip jumping up to explain to him what the words mean. The answer must be that there is some mysterious symbiotic relationship between election and teaching. I can't tell you what it is, but it has to be there. In Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says in verses 7 through 8, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who finds, and to the one who knocks, and the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now that is a promise of God. That put another way in scripture, uh, my favorite summation is that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And yet a few sentences later in the Sermon on the Mount, in verses 13 and 14, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard, That leads to life, and those who find it are few. So, it says, if we know that all who call on God will be saved, is this gate that Jesus is talking about too narrow, and thus limiting the number of people who will enter God's kingdom? It's a narrow gate, and it's a hard way. Perhaps it would be helpful to look at the narrow gate not as limiting the number of those saved, look instead at the gate as limiting the number of pathways to God. A common thing in our world today is all paths lead to God. The gate that is wide and easy is the way the world will choose of their own effort to seek after God. The wide gate has a path to Muhammad. The white gate has a path to Buddha. The white gate has a path to Vishnu, to Confucius, to Joseph Smith, Mary Baker Eddy, and Charles Taze Russell. Or as the Jews of Ephesus had it through their relationship by birth to Abraham, and the keeping of the law. That is the wide gate that leads to these paths. This is the broad gate, the easy gate, the gate that leads to nothing. When I was 15, times have so much changed, I went backpacking in the Sierra with some of my friends. In all of the expanse of the Sierras, We chose one route, and if you drive up 395, you will drive for miles and miles and miles and miles with no road going into the Sierra. And to get into the area we had to go to, 
We followed one way. We took the Kearsarge Pass. Now, I suppose we could have taken any number of paths, animal trails. We could have tried canyons in our travels, but we chose one way. It was a hard way. Who knew it would be freezing on the 4th of July at 12,000 feet? Not a bunch of stupid kids from the San Fernando Valley dressed for the beach, okay? Almost froze to death up there. Why take the route we chose? Because no other path, no rabbit trail, no canyon would get us over the mountain. Just as no path through the wide gate will get you where the narrow gate takes you to the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ is that narrow gate. In John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you want to get to the Father, there is only one path. Jesus is the way. When the Jews of the synagogue cursed the way by the name the Christians were called, they weren't just cursing Paul. And they weren't just cursing the Christians. They were cursing Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the way. We may be called the way, but we are called the way after Christ. So how many will comprise the few who find the narrow gate? I can't tell you how many they are, okay? I wish I knew. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers, had this to say about this very thing. He said, Some narrow-minded bigots think that heaven will be a very small place where there will be a very few people who went to their chapel or their church. I confess I have no wish for a very small heaven and love to read in the scriptures that there are many mansions in my father's house. How often do I hear people say, ah, straight is the gate and narrow is the way and few there will be that find it. There will be very few in heaven. There will be most lost. My friend, I differ from you. Do you think that Christ will let the devil beat him? That he will let the devil have more in hell than there will be in heaven? No, it is impossible. For then Satan would laugh at Christ. There will be more in heaven than there are among the lost. God says that there will be a number that no man can number who will be saved. But he never says that there will be a number that no man can number that will be lost. There will be a host beyond all count who get into heaven. And he concludes that by saying, what glad tidings for you and for me. For if there were so many to be saved, why should I not be saved? Why should not you? Why should not yon man over there in the crowd say, can I not be one among the multitude? And may not that poor woman there take heart and say, well, if there were but a half dozen saved, I might fear that I should not be one, but since many are to come, why should not I also be saved? Cheer up, disconsolate. Cheer up, son of mourning, child of sorrow. There is hope for thee still. I can never know that any man 
is past God's grace. And that is the reason that we are called to go out and preach to the world, despite the fact of election and despite the small gate. Grace is what God offers the sinner. And grace is what he offers to all who call upon his name to be saved. Let's close in prayer.